electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Lloyd Blank find the legendary former CEO of Goldman Sachs on the Fed, crypto, and the market's rough start to 2022. Those of us of a certain age are kind of having a little bit of PTSD back to uh, 1994. At this point, the market is, you know, the market is a little bit cringy. And online education pioneer Sal Khan. Khan Academy and crypto, and handling pandemic learning loss. There's a large amount of fatigue in the system, so I don't think the kids or or the system uh, can handle uh, many more months of this uncertainty and, and closures off and on. Plus, activists' big weekend and millions in Bitcoin wealth wiped out. When you start to look at the numbers in terms of who got in when, a massive percentage of those who now are literally living with losses. It's Monday, January 24th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And wow, what a week last week. We needed the weekend just to kind of get our heads back on straight and figure out what had happened. If you were watching the major indexes last week, you saw that the Dow had a really rough week. It was down by 4.6 percent. That's the worst week it's had since October of 2020. And out of the three of these indices, it was the big winner because the S&P was down by 5.7 percent almost. The Nasdaq was off by seven and a half percent just for the week for both of those indexes. That was the worst week they've seen since all the way back to the beginning of the pandemic, March of 2020. Um, And yeah, that was pretty painful. Bitcoin, something to watch, tumbling below thirty five thousand dollars over the weekend. It's now down about 25% from the start of the year, lost more than 11% just for the week to date. And guys, if you start looking at the the levels since its high in November, down over 45% from them. uh, So significant moves on the percentage basis, but because there's so much in crypto and crypto assets at this point, the dollar terms were pretty big too, about $600 billion in market cap that's evaporated from Bitcoin. And if you're looking at the entire aggregate crypto market, you're now talking about a trillion dollars in losses from the highs. When you start to look at the numbers in terms of who got in when and all of those folks who got in at higher prices, it starts to look like there's a huge number. I mean, a massive percentage of those who now are literally living with losses. Joe, we talked about, you know, getting in early, 10,000, 8,000, obviously even earlier than that. But it seems to be that it has shifted. And then the question, of course, is are they holdlers or not? But is it like stocks? Are, are there weak hands and strong hands? I did see someone say that, that a lot of the sellers were, were not big holders, but they had to be big holders, I, I, I would think. And I think it's more than 50 percent at this point. Pat. I mean, I, I right. think That's what six, I was thinking. 66, 67, 68 was the high. So we're at 33 now. So I don't know. Does it move to does it go uh, weak hands to strong hands? And this is no, most of people like Pomp and others are saying, look, just stop getting, you know, all, you know, you, 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 you've, we've seen this before is what they're saying, that it's, it's had two or three, four other years where it's had a 50 percent pullback. 
But the That's weird right. thing is, is this really is help. happening when the Fed is kind of moving against inflation. This Both was supposed things. to be the, the, yeah. the fiat currency. If you compare that up to gold, I think gold has only been down something like uh, 14% from right. where it was at some of these levels. Right. So, uh, you know. It, gold hasn't had that speculative. It, it, gold hasn't benefited from the, right. the uh, five years, 10 years of, right. of easy money that we've seen. That's a double whammy. It's, you know, rates are going, the Fed tightens and, and gets less accommodative and all the speculative money comes out. We will see. If you, if you really were brave, I guess you, if it got to 30, you'd probably buy it. But it's just. It, I don't it, know. You know the decision to hold it right here, it, for, for me, it would be like buying it right here. <laughs> you know, because well, you don't want it to go if to you're zero. Mi- I, gotta, but it, I, you know, I, I want to know like if you're 80%. an investor in microstrategy. If you're an investor in microstrategy today, That's down. where you've been totally levered. I mean, this is the this is the most levered Bitcoin play around. Right. You, I mean, you've been you've lost your shirt. By the way, there are now people taking their salaries in Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, and, and what about all of those folks who, by the way, are going to pay taxes on what they got paid originally? Our old friend Darren Ravel uh, had a tweet about Odell Kaepernick. Beckham Jr., who Odell took Beckham, his, yeah. Who, yeah. You, you saw this, he, he took yeah, his deal with the Rams, $750,000 wow. in yeah. Bitcoin. That deal is now worth $412,000, but he had so to be taxed on the seven fifty. Yeah, so that. now yes. he's, netted, he's netted for the year to play for the Rams 35000 bucks. Exactly. Does that seem like a, a sustainable proposition for anybody? It, 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 I don't think we ever said it's made it to currency. I think, we, I think people said that it, it is now looked at as a store of value. But Well, I mean, a store of value that's gone to, you know, it's not zero, but it's gone the it's down complete 50%. wrong direction the, as a store of value. The store of value is down 50% from the store of value at 68000 uh, $68, But up 15 times from where it was as a store of value two and a half years ago. Right, we've seen such a, in fact, I saw a story this morning that said that if you invested with Berkshire Hathaway under Warren Buffett or you invested in ARK with with Kathy Wood, your your returns for the last two years are the same. They just got there from very different paths, one that went real slow this way and one that went whoosh and back down. And you're kind of at the same point right now. Very busy for activist investors just over the weekend. I'm going to give you a really quick roundup. You're not going to believe how quick it is. Uh, actually, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to go slowly. A group backed by, in this case, Starboard, that hedge fund, offering about $9 billion to buy Kohl's, retailer Kohl's. That's according to uh, Bloomberg. The offer is led, though, by Acacia Research, uh, which takes stakes in companies with an eye towards ownership. Sources, though, tell CNBC also PE firm Sycamore Partners is preparing to make a separate bid for Kohl's. Kohl's management already been under fire by another activist, Macellum Advisors, which has been pushing for board changes or a sale. Multiple reports, meanwhile, say Nelson Peltz's Tryan Partners has built a stake in Unilever. Consumer goods maker recently faced some backlash from investors over its attempt to buy the Glaxo, SmithKline consumer health business. And finally, a source tells CNBC that Blackwell's Capital which has a stake of less than 5% in Peloton, is pushing the company to, f- to fire its CEO and consider uh, a sale, as it's obviously the share price has plummeted. The investor argues Peloton, Peloton could be an attractive acquisition target for a larger tech or fitness-oriented uh, company. And um, 
Yeah, definitely. I, someone said, and I was laughing, you know, people are going back to the gyms. That's obviously what's happening right. in Peloton. And, and someone was saying, you know, I can't wait to get to the point where I can start not going to the gym anymore. <laughs> Instead of not riding your Peloton bike? <laughs> yeah, that's where I, I can't wait till I can. Yeah, I don't want to go. I could, but uh, yeah. Yeah, just, uh, I can't right. wait to get to that point where I'm not going to the gym anymore. But, but by the way, on, on both, on you were saying, what do those activist approaches mean? All of yeah. those, with the exception of the Peloton piece, which is, which is its own idiosyncratic mess of a story. On the other two, those are traditional sort of quote unquote value plays. They have not been propped up uh, at all by the sort of pandemic play right. or even the rest of the market. Uh, the, Kohl's, the Kohl's business, I think, has been under question for a long time. So could that be a business you could somehow turn around? What could you do with that business? Unilever, probably less so, but you could see you could. So I don't know how much how much there is to take away from this sort of is there a moment here in terms of those companies. Peloton, I think, is a true sort of opportunistic play by by some folks who think that the company should, should get either sold or is maybe not being managed the way it should be. Opportunistic or somebody please buy us type of a type of a bid. I mean, that's almost what it sounds like. We're worth more than this. Somebody, we're worth more than this to somebody. That's what all of these pleas seem to sound like. Mm. It's not the only Peloton news, though. We should tell you about another negative portrayal for Peloton in a fictional television show, this time on the season six premiere of Billions. Andrew, you should be reading this, not me. But a character on the show suffered a heart attack after riding a Peloton bike. The character recovers and says later in the episode, I'm not going out like Mr. Big. Of course, that last line is a reference to an episode last month of HBO's Sex and the City sequel in which a main character died from a heart attack after taking a Peloton cycling class. The scene in Billions was written and shot months before the Sex and the City death, and the line referencing Mr. Big was added recently in post-production. Peloton said it did not agree for its brand to appear on the show or provide any equipment. It's... Uh, Kind of what happens when you're out there and you're hot and it's what everybody's talking about. I can't claim to have known anything about it. I'm just a proud papa of the program. <laughs> so I just, I just want you to know, I, did, I didn't know uh, that that was, that was in the cards at the time. And then, of course, uh, they dubbed it in after. You could see when Wags looks to the side, the, the, the voiceover that they, that they did in ADR. But, um, Where's the Homeland guy? Who's the bald guy? That's the guy now? Stoll, he's awesome. Okay. What, what it's, happened it's, to uh, the Homeland guy? Dave, you got to watch the show. I have to? You do. I, I'm not going to tell you. Next on Squawk Pod, checking in with one market maven on what 2022 has in store. Certainly started dramatically. Lloyd Blankfein, former chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs, joins us. There's a lot of inflation out there. The bulk of it obviously doesn't feel transitory. Uh, some of it might be, but I'm not I'm not Pollyannish. The Fed uh, is getting into gear here. And, uh, you know, again, they will probably come out and say hawkish stuff. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, Actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS. Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Our next interview is with Lloyd Blankfein, a Wall Street personality, formerly the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Blankfein rarely shies away from sharing his take on the markets and even on politics, famously sparring with Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in the past. Although on Twitter, his jabs at Bernie Sanders haven't stayed in the past. Today, we ask him about the Federal Reserve. The market is already expecting the Fed to hike rates four times this year because they hinted pretty strongly that they would, and the Fed's Open Market Committee meets this week, possibly to plan those hikes. But inflation, higher prices at the gas tank and the checkout line, is accelerating, and investors are getting frustrated. Economist Mohamed El Arian spelled out the market's irritation with the Fed on our TV broadcast this morning. If you look at analysts, I have never seen such massive dispersion in what analysts are saying, not only about what the Fed is going to do, but the Fed, what the Fed should do. So the Federal Reserve has lost control of the inflation narrative, understandably so, because it mischaracterized inflation as transitory for so long. The day before the January Fed meeting kicks off seems like the perfect time to talk to former Goldman CEO Lloyd Blankfein. Here's Joe with Andrew and Becky getting things started. Lloyd, let, let's just start macro, if you would, and welcome. It's good to see you. It's been a while. Let's start macro. If you believe that the longer and crazier and wilder the party is, the worse the hangover is, have we put in that type of uh, two or three year period where, as uh, Grantham says, we're looking at the end of a super cycle, a super bullish cycle that could take us down much further than people think? As a risk guy, do you, do you think there's uh, some, some truth well, in that? That, that, dr- that drunken metaphor is yours. I have less, maybe I have less experience at that, but I, but I would say that, um, well, perhaps I, I'd say one of the big issues in the market today is how far the Fed is the uncertainty. You know, the Fed has been pretty good at um, giving the market advance notice of the pace of change, how far change might go, and people have come to rely on that. And we're in a situation now, probably, where the Fed itself uh, is pretty insecure in that, and so. People are uh, people instead of having some certainty in that, not that there's ever really certainty, but a feeling of certainty. Um, people are kind of extrapolating, uh, you know, big horrors and, you know, risk, you know, it's you know, the riskiness of the situation is uh, uh, quite, uh, quite great. Uh, you know, at the moment, people are having uh, those of us of a certain age are kind of having a little bit of PTSD back to uh, 1994. You probably remember that Andrew probably wasn't born yet. But um, that was a situation in which the Fed um, had to uh, do a lot uh, and uh, in a relatively compressed time frame because they really lost. I'm not I'm not suggesting that I I believe that that's the situation now. But at this point, the market is, you know, the market is a little bit cringy. You remember the Fed put Lloyd and I'm going to put this in a way that that makes me. 
I mean, I guess I'd have to say that the, the Fed has gotten increasingly, increasingly political, and I think they care about what they're responsible for. Do you think they're going to have the resolve to, to, to do what's necessary in coming months if the market were to, to get dicey? Do you think they'd, is there a Fed put? Well, Would they back yeah. off based well, on that? Well, to unpack it, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure what, um, you know, away from the politics, you know, the Fed, you know, the Fed has a dual net. The Fed doesn't want to put the country into uh, into a recession, uh, regardless of what, you know, of, you know, not just as a matter of trying to please the politicians in office at the given moment. So I don't think they'll do that. They haven't shown that tendency. And, um, you know, I agree always and I can't really add to you know what Mohammed had said uh, previously. I'm just not as mad at them as he is, because I think that um, they had a tough job of keeping the country out of recession you know in other words they were giving the patient um you know that was you know that had a really you know that that had real big health issues that could have really you know that could have gotten existential and um they were uh they were erring on the side of preventing that problem and so they were willing to uh, you know they were willing to uh take uh, additional risks some of which is manifesting now um i think the Fed, you know, the market is in the process of absorbing what it believes the Fed has to do, maybe even a little more than that, uh, because, again, the unknown and the unpredictability of it. Uh, so it could be severe. It doesn't have to be as extreme as uh, some people are thinking. And it's not just a matter of, of pleasing the politicians. Look, there's a lot of inflation out there. The bulk of it, obviously, doesn't feel transitory. Uh, some of it might be. There are really supply, you know, it's not all or nothing. There are some issues that, you know, due to COVID and, you know, consequent effect on supply chains. Um, and um, there is a lot of stimulus in the market that was added. Again, you can discuss whether all of that was advisable or not. But the, you know, the fiscal policy also is trying to prevent, uh, you know, a worse, a worse outcome. And a lot of that uh, lighter fluid is getting burnt off also. And so some of it is, you know, some of it is transitory, but I'm not I'm not Pollyannish. The Fed uh, is getting into gear here. And, uh, you know, again, they will probably come out and say hawkish stuff, but also the markets have adjusted to some extent. Uh, it's really just a question of how much. And, you know, we're sitting here with the futures coming off again. And I'm trying to look at this in a way with the futures were up to, you know, one day doesn't make a difference. Who knows what can happen on any given day. But if the futures were up today, going into the opening as much as it was down, would people sound as negative as they do today? So you just have to separate yourself a little bit. You know, we're kind of in risk management mode here. We really don't know. The fact that we don't know is, is a bearish factor in and of itself. And so in risk management mode, you kind of kind of reduce risk. And that's what people are doing. Somebody alluded to the fact that more puts have been being bought, people are getting out of positions, but there'll be, you know, an end of it. And some of the best purchases here of securities in the long run will be done, you know, at a moment like this, when people are probably the most fearful. Hey, Lord, the, when you said that, you know, Fed doesn't want to cause a recession, there, there was a time when, when the Fed needed to do that to break the back of inflation, and that Volcker really did cause a, a recession. Which well, he was, did, and I, it wasn't, we're nowhere it wasn't near his intention. There, we're nowhere near that now, to, do you think? Are well, we, even though you said there's well, inflation every place. We all, we all live, I think we lived through that. I don't think we're there. If you look at, this, if you look at the numbers and you know, the shock headline of 7%, again, there's other factors that are, you know, that are going on here. 
um, that weren't uh, that weren't evident there. Look, there's other things, you know, too. We're starting at, you know, where you know short-term rates are zero to 25 basis points. You know, there's a lot of room to go up and still uh, still be, you know, the best game in you know equities, for example, still being the best game in town for quite quite a lot quite a lot of movement. And so there's that factor also. Again. No, I'm not Pollyannish. I've been in the risk management business for a long time, but you know, there's only so many times you can go through cycles like this where everybody's knees are knocking together. By the way, including mine, and not realize that there is, you know, it does there is a, it does come to an end, although people don't always think that. Yeah, but we get we're very low. We can we have plenty of time to go up, but if something were to go amiss, we don't have much cutting to do to, to try to stimulate things. Let me ask you about stimulus. Which is why, by the way, which is why they, which is exactly why they chose to err on the side of easy, easier monetary policy and take the risk of inflation versus the much more consequential risk of deflation. Do you think that if we don't get further fiscal stimulus, I don't know what happens, maybe we do smaller pieces of Build Back Better, but let's say that the election, who knows, it's, geez, it's so far off, believe it or not, November. But let's say that, that, uh, that we do switch the, the House or, 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 or even the Senate, and there's no more fiscal stimulus necessarily coming. Is, is that good or bad for the stock market and for the economy? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, obviously, <laughs> if you spend a lot of money and you introduce a lot of spending into the, into the market, that's, again, more lighter fluid, and then the risk is that all you're burning is lighter fluid, and the coals don't catch. And then what do you do? And then you have to deal with the consequence of, you know, additional debt and you know waste, you know wasteful spending. Um, I don't mind taking a pause here and letting you know letting us all absorb a lot of the uh, a lot of the stimulus that's already been introduced in the market. Clearly, that had. I mean, people who say that it doesn't have an inflate, obviously. If you pump a lot of money and you're going to have an inflationary um, effect, look, weird times. You know, we had, you know, high growth, you know, strong fiscal policy and zero interest rates. I mean, when does that when did that happen? And we know why it did happen in connection with COVID. Wish we had started at a higher place before COVID. And so maybe one of the problems was we should have taken away some of that ease and tightened up financial conditions a little bit in advance of it, so we could have started at a, at a stronger place and, and, and go down. And that goes to your ammunition point. But given where we are, it would be, certainly it would have been a lot more consequential to have a deflationary situation look like the recessionary and have no more, you know, and have, you know, not a lot of things that the Fed could have done. Now, obviously they can do more stuff, but not, not, not a lot of obvious stuff to do. I want to let Becky and, 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 and Andrew in, uh, but, but I've been around you enough to know how much you, you love studying history and, and, you know, things that happened before World War II, after World War II. What do you make of what will happen when, when if and, or when some, Russia goes into the, to Ukraine? Is that on your radar screen? Isn't that something that could be significant? Yeah, it just goes to show how focused we are on, uh, you know, this story of the day that we, we seem not to be noticed what would otherwise be the prevailing uh, prevailing uh, headline. You know, again, it's, re you know, I mean, I don't think we're, we're watching a looming World War Three here. Again, a lot of things when you don't know the outcome, you know, whenever something's resolved, you can look back and say that wasn't so bad. When you're in the middle of something and it could go in any number of directions, even though it's unlikely, people get a lot more 
uh, you know, it, it becomes a lot more problematic in people's minds. But, you know, generally, for the, mar the markets are kind of amoral. And I don't know that it necessarily has to affect most equity prices. I think in some kind of weird way, if there is that kind of a thing, maybe the market starts to think that the Fed will be a little bit less aggressive on raising interest rates or taking away, you know, their, their you know, their monetary stimulus. Certainly won't be bad for oil price, maybe bad for the country, but it won't be bad. You know, energy prices and commodity prices will go up. Uh, that's the usual pattern, but it doesn't have to be bad. You know, we're in a, you know, we, we might be entering that realm where kind of bad news is good news because bad news will kind of slow up the Fed and make people think that, you know, the, the inflation thing is a little bit more self-correcting and the economy uh, is, is, is slowing anyway. So, uh, you know, I don't know, but I remember, you know, living through a number of, you know, wars and things like that. Uh, it's not necessarily a, a horrible thing for the equity market, although it will be a bad day the first day that that happens. Right. Hey, Lloyd, uh, question for you. I don't know if there's a hard question for you to answer or not. Do you want to own the banks in this environment? And, and the reason I ask is there's a view that at least the traditional banks, the JPM's Bank of America's, are going to benefit uh, from 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 higher from a higher uh, interest rates and therefore the yield curve is going to go. Uh, Larry Fink was on our air the other day, said he thinks the yield curve is actually going to remain flat. There has been a lot of noise about a lot of people thinks the yield curve is going to be uh, very steep. I don't believe that. And I think I've said that in your show in the past. I think the yield curve is going to be flattening. I, you know, and I can even see if the Federal Reserve is very aggressive, uh, I can see a, you know, a negative yield curve. You've already seen the distinction between where the stocks of a JPM are compared to where Goldman is right now, your former firm. Yeah, well, I think banks have traded, you know, have earned a discount to the market uh, because every, you know, every once in a while, periodically, they had, you know, it seems like every four or five years had the crisis of the century every four or five years. And I think that that, you know, extra additional risk, I don't see any of that kind of looming on the horizon, bank balance sheets are, you know, look, away from the high, away from any additional tailwind you get from a change in the uh, in interest rates or the yield curve, they're making a lot of money in this market. And by the way, a lot of, especially, for example, the capital markets banks and the trading banks are making a lot of money. And by the way, they can make a lot of money when the market goes down and market goes, uh, goes up, just as long as there's a lot of activity. The problem is those earnings uh, have a low multiple applied to them because of the experiences that I have spoken of. But there's also a new regime there. The banks are operating under very, very tight oversight. And I know there are people who say, oh, my God, it's been loosened up. But no, it hasn't. The capital requirements are very, very stiff. And in a way, I'm not, you know, I'm not regretting that because if the banks were competing with each other, maybe by now they would have taken riskier positions. But the, you know, the, the rules that apply in the Fed hasn't let them. And so, you know, whether despite maybe their best, uh, best uh, you know, efforts to be riskier, they weren't allowed to be riskier. And so I think they're in very good shape and the earnings have been there and they trade on an unbelievably low multiple. So, yeah, the risk, of course, is that the multiple stays low. But at some point, people will be, you know, they they do earn money. They do buy back shares. They could raise their dividends uh, and probably will. And so I don't think it's a bad place to be. But then guess what? I talk my book. <laughs> Are you buying? My buying? I think I already own all of it. <laughs>
Hey, Lloyd, it's really good to see you. And I've been kind of thinking about one of the bigger issues. We did see average hourly earnings go up last year. They were up by 4.7%. But when you look at the overall pay for, for all workers, overall wages for all workers, when you adjust for inflation, they were actually down by 2.4%. Now, we've been talking about inequality for a long time. And last week, you did see Jeff Bezos lose $20 billion in the market declines. Elon Musk lost $25 billion. But that's probably not the way we wanted to fix the inequality problem. How, how do we kind of get at this intractable problem? Well, I, I don't concede on the intractability of anything, but I mean, it's, it's certainly difficult and it's certainly been around, but it's been, you know, it's been exacerbated. Um, look, the important thing is to do things that don't shrink. You know, you want, you know, the economic system has to do two things. It has to create wealth and it has to distribute it. I, I, I don't really, I, I think our system has been genius at creating it and a little less good at at distributing it. And so I think, I mean, hold your ears, uh, hold your ears, Joe. I think, you know, there has to be some distribution, uh, redistribution of it through the, uh, through the tax system. And I think that that's been accomplished. You know, we need a stable society and without that, it won't be a stable society for the, you know, for the wealthy to generate more wealth. So that has to happen. But on the other hand, I'm not for, I'm not for putting a greater part of the economy into the hands of the government because, you know, I don't want to turn transportation into Amtrak or the health system into the Veterans Administration, or, you know, you can go on and see, you know, see my drift there. I don't think, I think government, civil servants do a great job with what they have, but the, you know, but you can, you know, promote the most talented, everything is seniority, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult way to get the most value uh, and contribute most to the economy in, the, in public hands. Um, and so, I would again. I'm, I'm not. Um, I, I don't adopt the socialist credo of putting more of the economy into the hands of the government. But I, I, I don't despair. I don't hate that part of it that recognizes the uh, income uh, inequality and wants to uh, have a progressive tax system. Hey, Lloyd. Uh, I know we've talked about crypto with you uh, over the years, and you've uh, been, let's just say, politely skeptical. Does the 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 turn in crypto, even over the past couple of months or at least weeks change your view? Uh, is there, you know, a lot of banks, obviously, uh, traditional banks are now making crypto available in ways that they weren't before. How, how are we all going to look back at this five years from now? Look, my view of it is evolving, not as an, you know, an intellectual. Look, I remember when um, when they were, you know, decade, a couple of decades ago, maybe 30 years ago, maybe more, they were auctioning off the uh, they were offering uh, auctioning off bandwidth for cell phones. And I'm thinking to myself, why would anybody want to carry around a phone? I mean, there's, there's tens of thousands of phone booths all around the country. Why would anyone carry a phone? At that time, they were like backpacks. And I so thought that was, well, guess what? That worked. The point I take is, I don't, I can't, I don't know, I'm bad at, I, I can't predict the future, but I think it's a, it's a big thing to be able to predict the present, like what is happening. And I look at the, uh, I look at um, the crypto and it is happening. And so, I, you know, again, as an intellectual matter, I can't think differently about it, but as a pragmatist and as somebody who's skeptical, not only of the market, but skeptical of my own views and trying to get on board and acknowledge things that I don't know everything and strange things, things that I think are strange actually happen. I'd say at the point now it's lost a lot of value, but at a point where it's trillions of dollars of value contributing to it and the whole ecosystems are growing around it. And of course, we have the benefits of instantaneous transference or reduction of credit risk and all the benefits of blockchain that a million people come on your show and talk about. I'm, uh, you know, 
I may be skeptical, but I'm also uh, pragmatic about it. And so guess what? I, I would I would want to have a, I certainly want to have an oar in that water. Hey, Lloyd, I, I mean, the the way that really wealthy people are able to to shelter. I mean, obviously, a lot of the assets, some they've paid taxes on as that it was accrued. Some they haven't if if it's been stock that that's gone up that they've never paid taxes on. So I understand what you're saying there. Uh, but in terms of redistribution, you kind of mentioned my name. I, I think I redistribute, uh, you know, I live in New Jersey, so I'm at about 55, 57% or so. Uh, and, and I'm fine with that. But that's, you know, I redistribute what I make. Are, are you saying in general the U.S. tax system is not progressive or not progressive enough in your view? And, uh, and if so, what is a good number? To have as a maximum marginal rate for people that nah, make that. Joe, I mean, I'm not well, going to go. I'm not going to well, play well, that well, game. But I why you talk about it? You talk about it like you want to do it. Well, so is it progressive now or not, Lloyd? Well, I live in New York, so it's awfully progressive, but it's not as Thank necessarily you. as progressive. Okay. What? Thank you. I mean, to me, I don't even think you're barely a taxpayer because I live in New York and you're away, you're way over the, across the sea in New Jersey. <laughs> right, we do our best. In, uh, in, we, we try to we try to one up New York. I don't, what are we? A couple of basis points less than New York right now? What? I don't think we're much less. Well, in, maybe in uh, on that basis, you could you have you are for what you get, you may be overpaying more than I am. There's very people will say, oh, marginal rate. You know, you don't you, you have all those deductions. There aren't any deductions left for for just sort of. People that are doing very well, but not the people that, that we're talking about that, that have accrued trillions in the during the pandemic. So I don't know how we get after them, but that'd be good for I'm you to saying, come up. Joe, with. I'm not a, I'm not a flat tax a flat tax nick. Um, right. I just think that you know again being you know looking at the world, you can't you know the system. It's not going to be good for wealthy people if the. If okay, the, well, uh, if I, the I know. Figure out a way to give me a way to do it. Don't just say it in virtue signal that you want to do it. Tell me how you want to do it. Then tell me how you want to do it. How do you want to do it? Well, let me consult my my. Let me consult my staff of economists that they have at the Treasury and come out right. with a precise number for you, and I'll be back. You mentioned 1994 uh, that Andrew wouldn't remember. Do you remember that bank crisis in 1907, Lloyd? Now that was a doozy. Remember that one? Woo! That was uh, you know Joe, brutal. brutal. Joe, I didn't live through the Civil War, but I know a lot about it because I read. <laughs> you so the bottom line is I do know a lot about the 1907 situation. <laughs> you don't have to live through everything, but I will tell you it's a lot more vivid when you do live through it. And I, I did live you. through 1994. You, 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 you have my favorite quote of all time, Lloyd, that we're not in a, in a Higgins boat. We're going into the New York Fed. That's the greatest quote of right. all time. Thanks, Lloyd. Still to come on Squawk Pod, Khan Academy founder Sal Khan on approaching year three of pandemic and how it's hitting classrooms. The negative consequences of missing school we've seen over the last almost two years are significant in a lot of school districts, especially large urban school districts. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Stand back to buy in three, two, one, wipe cue. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Becky Quick. President Biden doubling down on Wednesday on keeping schools open despite having Omicron raging through the country. We're not going back to lockdowns. We're not going back to closing schools. But let's put it in perspective. 95, as high as 98% of the schools in America are open, functioning, and capable of doing the job. The CDC is currently recommending third vaccine doses for immunocompromised children ages five and up and booster shots for all kids ages 12 and up. However, there's still no vaccine for those under five. But this debate about keeping schools open is an important one, and it's a little different than we saw when it first started two years ago. Joining us right now is Saul Khan. He is the founder and CEO of Khan Academy. And Saul, I know you've got some news on NFTs and philanthropy that's pretty exciting, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. First, though, I did want to ask you about schooling during the latest COVID wave, uh, because you're seeing places like Chicago and uh, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, taking a strong stand where, where they didn't in, in the past. When, before they were OK with schools going remote, we know a lot more about that remote lo- learning and what it meant. Yeah, I, I agree with them. At, at, at this point, you know, what we're really trying to optimize for is make sure that the kids under five years old aren't getting sick. Uh, we are seeing increased hospitalization rates on that group, although they're still it's not that probable. Um, and then uh, you just want to make sure that your local hospitals aren't getting overwhelmed. Uh, but in terms of risks, when you look at the numbers, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I've been close, closely tracking this, uh, especially from a school point of view. Uh, a, a, uh, the risk to a vaccinated, a fully vaccinated adult, or especially a, a child who's aged between ages five and 18, uh, it does not look like a significant risk right now. The symptoms are are very low. And the negative consequences of missing school we've seen over the last almost two years are significant in a lot of school districts, especially large urban school districts. You're seeing five, 10, 15% of the si- students who've just fallen out of the system. You're seeing another big chunk of students who've uh, disengaged, lost 10, 15% of the learning they otherwise would have. Uh, so it's a, it's a bad situation. Even just being in school for the last year and a half, uh, the schools are just trying to do what they can. There's a large amount of fatigue in the system. So I don't think the kids or, or the system uh, can handle uh, many more months of this uncertainty and, and closures off and on. I mean, it's interesting coming from you, too, because you've been a huge promoter of learning online, but not as a replacement to in school, kind of as a supplement to what you learn in the classroom. Yeah, our ideal at Khan Academy as a not-for-profit, obviously, if students don't have access to school, if you're a child in a village someplace in India, or if there's a global pandemic and your schools are shut down or your school doesn't offer a certain course, we want to be a safety net for the global education system. But our ideal use case is to be used in a school context. Half of the 13 billion learning minutes that we get a year are done through teacher direction, uh, because teachers see the value in students being able to learn at their own pace, get as much practice as they need, et cetera. That support is crucial for students to engage uh, in a platform like Khan Academy. And of course, it's much more than just Khan Academy, just to get the socialization, the connections, the the human mentorship that you get in in-person school, you can't replace with online. 
Khan Academy is a, a nonprofit, and you are supported entirely by philanthropy. Um, philanthropy's changed a bit. We're seeing some new things, and so are you. You guys have a, a new uh, NFT that you're going to be the beneficiary of. You want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, this is one of those interesting things that show up on our table every now and then. The, this group, a Parallel, which makes these science fiction NFT trading cards, uh, they reached out to us several weeks ago and said, hey, we auction off these masterpiece NFTs and we'd like to donate all the proceeds to Khan Academy. So whenever we see something like this, we're like, what's the catch here? Uh, but they've been genuine. And uh, in the past, these uh, this is a picture of it right over here. It's called Inspiring Teacher, which we're flattered that they made uh, an NFT uh, for that's kind of connected to Khan Academy in this way. But in the past, these have auctioned off for several hundreds of thousands of dollars, all the way up to uh, over a million dollars. Uh, there's nine hours left in the auction, and so it's, it looks like it's already uh, approaching $150,000. So uh, it's it's obviously valuable to support us as a not-for-profit. Uh, you know, I tell people we're the budget of a large high school, but we our aim is to serve much of humanity, and we have over 100 million uh, users around the world that we're offering free free learning to uh, around the world. So so this uh, donation is both going to serve a lot of folks. Uh, but at the same time, it's a really interesting experiment to see how the NFT world uh, and the char charitable world can intersect. It's not the first time you're doing something that's kind of new and out there. I mean, you've been getting cryptocurrency for a long time for part of your philanthropic donations, right? Yeah, we've been accepting them for a very, very long time. I remember it was you know near near the beginning of the whole Bitcoin um, interest that one of our engineers allowed us to accept it. I kicked myself a little bit. I remember we got a, a million dollars in Bitcoin like seven years ago, and you know we prudently uh, converted that to cash immediately. We would have had a larger endowment had we had that. But uh, yeah, we, we always, you know, we we want to innovate when it comes to education, when it comes to learning, but also uh, new ways to be a not-for-profit and new ways for people to contribute to what what we need to do. Hey, Sal, I know you expanded the academy a lot during the pandemic to try and help people out, help countries out, help villages out, help students who weren't in school at that point. Um, what, what did it mean in terms of the strains on your budget? What were you able to do? How much of that was able to come from people who were volunteering? And, and where do things stand right now? Do you have enough to help everybody who needs it? Yeah, when the pandemic hit, you can imagine a lot of a lot more people were relying on Khan Academy. We went about tw from about 20 million learners a month to about 30 million learners a month. We went from about 30 million learning minutes per day on the platform to at the peak uh, when when the school started closing physically to almost 80, 90 million learning minutes per day. And this has been a moment uh, where we see we have to step up. This is, you know, the world to some degree has been depending on us. But you can imagine that also affects our budget. Just our server costs are approaching $10 million a year. Uh, the remainder of our costs are really to support a platform uh, with practice exercises. We're covering all of the K through 12, K through 14 academic material. We're exploring ways for students to get college credit for free uh, on Khan Academy. Uh, we're, we're continuing to add science content and other types of content. And uh, this this costs real resources. As I said, we're the budget of a large high school. Our total annual budget's about $60 million a year. Uh, and it's raised primarily through philanthropy. We have a, a little bit of earned revenue where the official practice for the SAT College Board provides us some revenue. And so it's critical uh, for donors of all levels, uh, corporate partners, uh, whatever they can do uh, to help keep us going. I always make the argument that in the physical uh, arena, you have institutions like physical libraries, physical parks, physical museums. Uh, and that's part of civic society. In the online world, which we all see is sometimes the Wild West, it's important, we believe, to have institutions like Khan Academy there to uh, help educate folks. 
Folks, for those of you who aren't familiar with Khan Academy, Sal's been a regular with us. But if you're not familiar, he started this because he was tutoring his cousin at one point. Other kids wanted involved, other family members, I think. So he found a way to teach everybody. He was approached by a lot of venture capitalists as a way of kind of profiting from this, but he chose to keep it a nonprofit. And I think that's hugely important. Um, Sal, just want to thank you for all the work you've been doing through the pandemic and beyond. Uh, I think it's super important. Appreciate it. We have a long way to go. We, our, our aim is to serve billions. So th thanks for having me. Great to see you. We'll talk to you soon. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for starting your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And tweet us your thoughts anytime at Squawk CNBC. We will meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.